From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today on The Public Morality, our focus is on President Barack Obama's last State of the Union address. We'll speak with foreign policy analyst Leon Hayter and Amy Traub, senior policy analyst at the Demos Institute in New York City. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Last week, President Barack Obama gave his final State of the Union address. Instead of outlining a series of proposals as presidents traditionally do, he instead gave analysis of where the country is headed after he leaves office, along with a vigorous defense of his accomplishments to put the country in that direction. I want to begin by focusing on the foreign policy portion of the speech with foreign policy analyst Leon Hayter, formerly of the Cato Institute. Leon Hayter, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you. Let's begin with what, if anything, that you liked about the President's State of the Union Address. Well, I would make a distinction between what I liked and what I think would be the you know, the general public response. Uh, as a political scientist, uh, man of reason, uh, I uh, appreciated the way he uh, presented the, you know, some of the foreign policy issues that the United States is facing, including issue of terrorism and Iran and so on, in a very rational and measured way, uh, uh, pointing out to the you know, many nuances uh, that are involved in issues that it's not all black and white, that uh, ISIS is a threat, but it's not really an existential threat, and so on and so forth. Those are all good arguments, and if I sit with a bunch of friends in a think tank and we discuss those issues, I think that will be probably the, the general consensus. The problem is that I think uh, when you talk about, uh, in general, about the American people and uh, the public, I think the responses to, uh, you know, especially to images of uh, death and destruction and terrorism uh, uh, ignites a lot of fears and uh, concerns, anxiety, and so on and so forth. And I'm not so sure that the the way uh, the president uh, uh, tried to explain those issues and um, tried to, uh, you know, provide a perspective, general perspective on that uh, would convince, I think, uh, a lot of Americans. I think there's still there's still a lot of anxiety, and I don't think he, he projected the, the, the kind of strength and leadership that uh, in times of war uh, people would like to get from a president. Just speaking clearly on, on, on your analysis, when we are engulfed in the type of fear you just referenced, is there anything that anyone could have done, specifically this president, anything he could have said that would have assuaged some of those fears? Yeah, I, I don't know. You know, it, again, it's, it goes a little bit beyond, uh, you know, saying something, uh, even a word, or uh, it's, you know, it has something to do with body language and projection and so on. I actually, you know, I've been very critical of uh, President George W. Bush's uh, policies, especially the the war in Iraq. But I think his immediate response to 9-11, including the address he gave on on Capitol Hill in Congress, as well as his appearance um, on, uh, you know, the print 
Taos and the way he, you know, hugged the firefighters and so on. I think that was a kind of response that I think, uh, um, you know, was the right one and, you know, whatever it was, did create, uh, gave a sense of pride and, and, and so on without becoming too, um, you know, militaristic or nationalistic or whatever you want to call it. So, you know, that was, I, I think he did the right thing. You know, I, I think it has to do, again, a lot with theatrics and the, the way you deliver a message and so on. Again, I think, and I, I don't blame, you know, President Obama is, a, you know, by nature a, a professor type, and uh, he probably feels more comfortable sitting with, you know, a bunch of people in a think tank and talking about this issue. But, um, you know, I still don't think that he found the, the correct, you know, formula that uh, uh, would, you know, change the mood in the country, and uh, in t especially in terms of terrorism. And, again, it's not, you know, a clear strategy, and he doesn't have to go to the to the extreme that, say, uh, Donald Trump did when in one of uh, uh, his addresses, uh, you know, shouted, uh, you know, some profane language in terms of, you know, we're going to destroy them and so on and so forth. You can find the right balance between, uh, you know, being too professor-like uh, professor and, uh, you know, uh, jingoistic um, kind of uh, Donald Trump. There is somewhere in the middle, and uh, you know we still didn't, didn't get it. And I, I don't think uh, uh, I think because of that, I think uh, the response to the at least the foreign policy issue, uh, I don't think was as positive as he wanted. One of the things I'm hearing you saying, correct me if I'm wrong, but as president of the United States, you're sort of creating an ongoing narrative. And so it's, once that narrative has been created, it's really impossible for one, one address, one speech to really change that existing narrative. Um, well, it, it's true. Uh, in, in some respect, I think it just, it goes again, you know, sometimes the, um, you know, there isn't a clear narrative on the issue because uh, it's very d difficult to create one, especially when you deal with an issue like uh, terrorism and, and ISIS and so on. It's very easy to, you know, when we were during the Cold War or uh, World War Two, you know, there were the good guys, the bad guys, uh, and no one really had any doubts about that. Uh, uh, even when it came to at least the beginning of the war in Iraq and uh, uh, certainly after 9-11, you know, uh, the, the, I don't think people were confused about those issues and, uh, you know, things were quite clear. It became a little bit more complicated. I think George W. Bush already faced it when, you know, during the war in Iraq when, when it wasn't so easy to, you know, place everything in a black and white kind of perspective. So I, I think it's, you know, the, the issue of terrorism today is very complex and, you know, uh, it's, it's difficult to, uh, you know, to present a very kind of simplistic uh, black and white narrative on that issue because, you know, we, we don't like, we clearly think that they are monsters, but at the same time, um, you know, we are not dealing here with, uh, you know, a powerful uh, player like the Soviet Union or Nazi Germany that we can, you know, project power and do something. There isn't really a clear and coherent response to, to uh, you know, what's happening with high ISIS. Uh, 
and it's not only ISIS, even the, 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 you know, the sense of what are we dealing with, the Al-Qaeda, the ISIS, there are all kinds of, you know, small group and extensions and so on. And it's very difficult to pinpoint, uh, you know, what we are dealing with, especially when it's only your neighbor uh, in San Bernardino, you know, you didn't even know that the guy right. is... So, you know, it's, you know, there's no simple narrative here. And um, I don't think anyone, uh, in, in, I, even when um, uh, the Republicans talk about this issue, they, they have difficulties because they said, let's go after, let's go after uh, ISIS. But then Iran uh, is also fighting ISIS, and they also think that Iran is the bad guy in the story. So how can we, you know, work with Iran against ISIS? So it's, it, I think everyone has now difficulties to, to, to place all these issues in, a, in a, as I said before, in a black and white uh, uh, perspective, like we had other, uh, uh, you know, foreign entanglement. And uh, um, in some respect, you know, what you have to do uh, as a president, uh, because I said once, you know, president is not, in American context, is not only a, uh, prime minister or a manager, uh, you know, it's the, the leader of the tribe. And, you know, people just want to do something. It, I, mean, I think if you look at someone who was a genius in all of that, I think Ronald Reagan was, uh, uh, you know, actually Ronald Reagan, if you go back, uh, didn't launch any wars against uh, the Soviet Union or uh, most of it was some, you know, small guerrilla wars. Uh, and that uh, he was involved, but he projected a certain persona of, you know, um, a cowboy, and someone uh, without creating expectation that anything is going to happen. And uh, that's why we remember him as a very strong leader, even he, though he was the one who actually ended up uh, uh, reaching deals with uh, the Soviet Union and Gorbachev. So, mm -hmm. you know, he was very good in, in that. Uh, um, I, I think uh, um, President Clinton always also knew how to do it. Uh, I just don't think, you know, I, I, there's nothing, you know, he has, uh, President Obama has only one year in, in office left, and he's not going to change his personality in those, you know, very few months that he's in office. So he is what he is, and, you know, the good, you know, he, has the, he knows how to deliver speech, and he's charming, and people like him, and so on. But when it comes to this, you know, he's, he's not a war president, to put it in, in, in a very simple terms. And, you know, if I had to make a movie about uh, a war president, I won't cast him in that role. Right. So, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, there's nothing he can do. As I said, I mean, it's, it's, it's a given, and uh, he will just have to deal with it, uh, you know, as, as, as much as he can. And, you know, clearly he, he made it clear that he doesn't want to deploy uh, ground troops to uh, uh, Syria and Iraq, and uh, he reached a deal with Iran. And, uh, you know, there is, you know, you can't expect that, the, you know, anything dramatic is going to happen. Uh, uh, the only thing I think he hopes that there's not going to be, uh, you know, another major terrorist attack, uh, which, you know, is going to put pressure on him to really do something. Well, on that last question, let me just follow up. Is there, in your analysis, is there a policy that could conceivably remove ISIS without involving boots on the ground? Yeah, well, I mean, there are all kinds of scenarios. I mean, to, uh, if you look at, uh, you know, uh, in, on what is ISIS, uh, 
compare it, you know, this is not the, the Nazi or the Soviet military, I mean, which was, you know, uh, those were, you know, global powers with uh, nuclear, I mean, Soviet Union had nuclear bomb, Germany was the most powerful military in the world. We are talking here about, uh, you know, a few thousand, uh, um, you know, uh, terrorists that are controlling a certain region. I mean, in practical terms, uh, you know, if, if Turkey, for example, decided tomorrow to uh, go to war against ISIS, uh, they have the military capability to invade Iraq and Syria and, you know, uh, destroy uh, uh, ISIS in a few days. The cost will be probably enormous. A lot of Turkish soldiers will die and uh, and, and uh, a lot of civilians will be killed, uh, especially if you use air power. But, you know, those, you know, it's it's doable. It's not a big deal. And the United States certainly has the capability to do it. But there's costs involved in terms of uh, um, uh, casualties and, and also other costs uh, in terms of drawing the United States into more entanglement in all this mess in the Middle East. In some respect, I think, again, this is a very detached perspective on my part, but I think President Obama is doing the right thing by not getting involved because it provides incentives for regional powers or even the Europeans who actually have more at stake here. Look at Europe. I mean, all this refugee uh, problem affects Europe. It doesn't affect the United States. So Europe has, uh, you know, clear uh, national interest on what is its uh, strategic backyard. So you ask yourself, why shouldn't Germany, uh, Britain, and France, who are very rich countries and have a, a military that can fight in the region, that, why shouldn't they send the troops there or do something about it? Why should the United States uh, do that for them? Uh, if we had a problem with Mexico, we wouldn't expect the uh, you know, the Germans and, and the British to come and help us. So in some respect, I think in the long run, if you look, this is creating incentives for the regional powers, the global powers who have an interest in this, uh, in the Middle East, to do more to protect their interests and, and not to wait for the United States to come and, uh, um, you know, get them out of this mess. So in some respect, I think this is a, a, a positive development, although in the short run, you know, uh, you're going to see mess and chaos and a lot of, uh, you know, death and destruction and refugees. But it, clearly the United States doesn't have the resources and the will to resolve it, and uh, other, other players should get involved. Well, staying with that, we're speaking with uh, Leon Hader, uh, for policy analyst. Uh, beyond those that were in the chamber and the American people, it felt, at least to me, that the president was speaking in that speech to our allies. How, how, how did you see that? Did you feel that at all? Um, I, you know, actually the foreign policy part of his speech, uh, um, I don't think was uh, the, the central one. I mean, it was part of the speech. Uh, uh, and uh, I, I think that uh, um, uh, he, he did, uh, for example, uh, he called on Congress to uh, uh, approve the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership uh, trade deal, which is very important to uh, uh, our allies in, um, you know, in East Asia and the Pacific. I'm not sure any, uh, it's going to happen as far as the Congress is concerned. But um, I think that, um, I, I think that, the, the, you know, there's another point here which you didn't mention, which is like foreign policy and domestic policy. 
I write for porn publications, and I know there is a lot of concern um, among uh, our allies in Europe, Asia, and elsewhere about Donald Trump. I mean, the notion that uh, someone like Donald Trump uh, will be elected as president, uh, the emphasis he, pla he places on nationalism and uh, trade wars and, and so on and so forth, is something that I think uh, worries a lot of uh, um, European, Asians, and others, uh, certainly Mexicans. And I think Obama, what he did, he, put, he puts a lot of emphasis on, on kind of, you want to call it an anti-Trump message, uh, puts emphasis on inclusion, on, uh, um, on, on, on not criticizing the other and the foreigner, not scape, scapegoating immigrants and so on. I mean that's a positive message in 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 that sense that it you know something that uh, uh, I think one of the reasons that a lot of uh, uh, foreigners uh, uh, applauded when uh, Obama was uh, elected uh, at the time and um, I, I think it was important that it, he, he, he of course he didn't mention Trump by name but I think it was clear from uh, uh, some of the arguments that he make, uh, as well as, uh, ironically, the Republican uh, um, uh, address that was delivered by uh, you know, the governor of South Carolina. Yeah, Nikki Haley. Yeah, like, it was also very similar. And again, he didn't mention uh, uh, Trump, but he talked about the need, she talked about the need to, you know, about inclusion and, and so on and so forth. So I think in that respect that I think the speech uh, uh, was quite good uh, in terms of, uh, you know, delivering a message to uh, people around the world who are concerned about it. Again, it, it's not going, not going to change the American election, and you know, and Trump can get a nomination and maybe even win the election. But um, I think it was important that uh, Obama would raise those issues. Well, staying with the foreign policy aspect, but also um, since, since you raised the um, that that sort of domestic piece of presidential election, it seems to me that the Republican Party right now, while they obviously believe. Uh, the president's policies with regard to Syria and ISIS have been a failure, and, they, and they've made America less secure. And one end, but at the same time, and I'm speaking probably more for the establishment portion of the party, they're probably equally leery of you know not, not only Donald Trump's fear-based rhetoric, uh, and just the anti-immigration piece. Ted Cruz wants to carpet bomb, and I think you know what that would do. And then Chris Christie saying essentially we're uh, near World War III. So how does the party sort of bridge this dilemma between these sort of um, fear, the fear-based rhetoric by some of those running for political office, with some justified criticisms of the president? Well, I think the. Machiavellian thing would be to for the Republicans. Uh, I mean, what they want to do is basically to, um, you know, the scenario is, uh, you know, Ronald Reagan after Jimmy Carter. I mean, if you go back uh, uh, to that election uh, in 1980, there was a lot of uh, at that time concern about American uh, position in the world, the uh, Iran hostage crisis, uh, the invasion of Afghanistan. And in many respects, uh, you know, Reagan came as this uh, powerful figure that is going to, you know, uh, bring, uh, make Americans stronger and reassert American power around the world and so on. At least in terms of the perception, uh, um, uh, in terms of, the, you know, what he did really, uh, you know, that was quite different. But, uh, uh, you know, that was a perception. And that's one of the reasons he won the election. I think the Republicans are hoping that, um, you know, notwithstanding 
you know, specific policy proposal that the perception of uh, weakness in Washington, uh, you know, with uh, uh, Obama being, uh, you know, kind of a rerun of the, the Carter uh, scenario, that, uh, you know, their uh, candidate, whoever he is uh, or she is, uh, is going to um, emerge again as an alternative to that weakness, uh, you know, we're going to make America strong again, it's morning again in America and all of that. So, you know, I think, it's, again, it's more perception. I don't think if you look at the policy proposal, if you want, want even to call them that, you know, they, they don't really uh, uh, present any grand strategy that, uh, you know, says, you know, this is where, the way we're going to win the war. Um, uh, again, they talk a lot about, uh, they criticize uh, rightly or wrongly uh, Obama for not being more assertive, for not calling the terrorists radical Islamists. Uh, they talk about, uh, you know, uh, as you mentioned, carpet bombing. But they also know, I mean, if you look at public opinion polls, uh, uh, both Democrats and also most Republicans uh, are not very excited about the idea of uh, another Iraq uh, in the Middle East, or in terms of sending uh, hundreds of thousand troops, uh, U.S. troops to the Middle East. So this is this won't be, um, you know, an, a, a, pre, a presidential candidate showing up in the debate and saying, you know, I promise you that if I'm going to be elected, I'm going to send uh, 100,000 troops and we are going to invade Syria. Uh, this is not going to work. I mean, that's not a very popular message and. Uh, so you have to find, you know, they're trying to find the right balance between criticizing Obama as a weak president and at the same time uh, suggesting that they will be, you know, more assertive. Although in terms of the, the real policies, uh, they really are not providing any alternative. So I think that's, that's the, their main goal is to use the foreign policy issues, especially since the economy at least seems to at least improved a little bit, uh, they think that the foreign policy issue is now going to be the uh, strong uh, uh, issue in the campaign. And I think they're going to do it. Whoever is elected, you know, if it's uh, uh, Marco Rubio or uh, Ted Cruz or uh, Donald Trump, I don't think there's a major difference between uh, those candidates on this issue. So... Um, as a foreign policy analyst, are you concerned at all that the that the rhetoric of Trump and Cruz and Christie, specifically the carpet bombing, World War Three, the anti-immigration, those types of things, are you concerned that those uh, become those statements become fodder for ISIS recruiting? Um, maybe. I mean, I think it's. Uh, um, let me put it this way. I I, I think. Uh, if you look at the parts of the Muslim world, especially in the Middle East and other parts, uh, uh, I think the level of uh, anti-American sentiments uh, um, has been strong. And you know, if you look at uh, Pakistan, for example, uh, uh, where Obama is not very popular because of uh, the use of drones against, um, uh, you know, Al Qaeda and so on. A lot of civilians were killed. So. Uh, um, it's not like Obama is seen in the Middle East as a peacenik or something, you know, uh, despite the way the Republicans are uh, describing him. I, I doubt very much that, the, you know, the, 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 uh, see major differences between uh, the candidates. Uh, I think they, uh, if Hillary Clinton will be elected, I, I think she's perceived also as a kind of... Uh, 
um, hawkish on, on many of those foreign policy issues. So I think it would be, you know, it's a nice, the Democrats can make that argument, I suppose, during the election that uh, um, the, that rhetoric is helping um, Al-Qaeda and uh, ISIS to recruit people. But I, I doubt that it's going to, I mean, I don't see thousands of, you know, Muslims uh, deciding to join ISIS because of uh, uh, Trump's rhetoric, you know. I think it, the, it's a much, you know, in terms of the picture, you know, talking about, you know, an historical process, historic process that has nothing, you know, to do with specific issues. It's been going on for a long time, and uh, it's not going to be resolved even if, uh, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders is <laughs> going to be elected, you know. So, you know, we have problems here that, um, um, uh, you know, I, I, I think are you know, going to live with them for a very long time, whoever is going to be the president. Last week, uh, the sailors that drifted into Iranian waters and were taken by the uh, Iranians and later released, is that a commentary on the recent agreement that we struck with Iran, or is it just too early to tell? Look, most of these incidents, uh, you know, from my reading uh, in the past, you know, are usually um, 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 kind of accidents. Uh, It's not part of, you know, someone was sitting in Iran or saying, you know, we should really, uh, you know, attack an, an American boat and put them, you know, get the sailors and show them to the wall. I mean, it just kind of happens. Uh, somebody, may, you know, the Americans may have made a mistake and, you know, there's an, uh, an Iranian admiral reacts and before you know, you have a, a crisis of that sort. The way the Obama administration is spinning this issue is saying that, you know, because of the deal with Iran, and because we opened diplomatic channels to Iran, and so on and so forth, we could have we could resolve this issue uh, quickly, as opposed to if we didn't have, uh, you know, uh, channels like that today with Iran. This could have been dragged on for a while, and uh, you know, uh, ignite really uh, international conflict and so on. So they're, they're putting a positive spin. Now the other side will will argue, and again, again, we are coming to the perception and images, which, which unfortunately are very important uh, in in all of this. I mean, you know, the American people wake up in the morning today, they see, um, you know, American sailors. Uh, um, I wouldn't say mistreated, but the image of um, American sailors uh, uh, surrendering. There is even a, fem- a female sailor there who is uh, forced to wear, uh, uh, you know, something to uh, cover her hair and, and so on. So, you know, it doesn't look good. It Again, it adds to that sense of anxiety with, you know, terrorism and so on. And, uh, you know, you can say, well, you know, it could have been worse uh, if we didn't have the... Um, channels with open to to Tehran, but I think a lot of Americans are, are you know, are going to be depressed at the minimum of seeing those images. And again, it's going to help the Republicans to, um, I think, in the campaign to, uh, and again, rightly or wrongly, I'm not saying that it means anything, but it, it is affecting the way, you know, people see you know, it's like the, those images, remember, of the hostages in Iran that uh, played an, an important role. But again, I think the, the, the administration, again, it's a very nuanced perspective. It's a very complex, it's, uh, again, it works in a think tank uh, discussion. You know, it can make an argument, look, we, we you know, it's, you know, we don't have... Uh, 
kumbaya with the Iranians now. Uh, clearly, we don't like the Ayatollahs, and we hope that you know uh, democracy will eventually arrive. But you know, we had to make a deal. Uh, it's better than a known deal. Uh, without a deal, you know, we could have been in, in a war now. An incident like that could have ignited a confrontation. So all things considered, uh, what we did is helping you know, U.S. interest and, and so on and so forth. But again, that's a very complex argument to make, and I'm not sure that the uh, uh, American people uh, will buy into it. Well, Leon Hader, my musical soulmate and friend, uh, <laughs> I, I want to thank you once again for being on The Public Morality today. Ah, okay. Uh, my pleasure, and Happy New Year to you. Thank you. Happy New Year to you. And now let's examine the domestic portion of the speech. To do this, we'll speak with Amy Traub, a senior policy analyst with the Demos Institute, a think tank located in New York City. Amy Traub, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you so much for having me. Let's begin with uh, just talking briefly about um, the present State of the Union address and just in the context of uh, what was it, if anything, that you actually that you liked about the speech? Yeah, well, what stood out to me is the extent to which President Obama is really laying out a broad vision for the future of the country beyond what he expects to accomplish in his last year in office. He laid out not just his own policy agenda, but really a vision for the country's future and the challenges that the nation faces, not just him himself as president, is really going to face in getting there. Um, is there anything they, that um, you would have liked to have seen him at or something that you may have found somewhat problematic in that? Well, I love what the president has to say about immigration and immigration policy. And I always, I always find his, his speeches on this issue lyrical and moving. And at the same time, I'm concerned that it, it doesn't match the actions that we see from the government on immigration. The Immigration and Customs Enforcement um, authority is deporting refugee children back to violence in Central America. And I just wonder how we reconcile that with the values that Obama spoke to really eloquently in his speech. And so I, I would have liked to see him address that more or to, to really work to make sure that the actions of the government match up with these really beautiful values that he's calling us all to, to stand by. You, know, you you sort of touched on this in your initial answer, but I think it's fair to say this was not your typical State of the Union address. And why do you think the president chose this approach? Well, this is his last year in office. It's the president's last year. And he, he knows that he is facing a, a largely hostile Congress that has really blocked his agenda. I won't say at every turn, but at almost every turn, let's put it that way. So it's it's very difficult to see. Um, how much he's going to be able to to accomplish with Congress this year. And so the president is looking to the bigger picture and the wider vision for the country. I, I, I got the feeling, and certainly don't want to put words in your mouth, that he sort of resigned himself that now he's officially uh, lame duck with the 2016 presidential election about to take hold. You know, to an extent, I think that's true. At the same time, there are things that the president can still do through executive action. Can I give you an example? Please, please. Sure. Um, okay, so, so Demos has called on the president to sign a good jobs executive order, for example, mandating that federal contractors, who the president is empowered to set rules for, do the things that he would like all employers to do. 
And we've seen some of that so far. President Obama has raised wages for contractors, just as he'd like Congress to raise the minimum wage for all workers. He's guaranteed contract workers paid sick days, and he's banned discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation for employees who work for federal contractors. One big step that the president could still take is demanding that contractors not interfere with employees' rights to organize unions and to bargain collectively. And he mentioned in the State of the Union that collective bargaining is under attack. We, we see that in the Supreme Court this week. Yes. And so an executive order on contractors would really help at least this pool of workers that the president could directly help. And it would send a strong message that collective bargaining really is part of what has made the middle class in America. And it's something valuable that we should be defending. You, you, know, you, you spoke about um, uh, executive orders, which is going to be my, my column next week, my next week's ah. column. But uh, if you could, for our listeners, um, when we talk about executive orders, even though we uh, we know that they're limited uh, for a limited time period. Uh, given the fact the president's only going to be in office for another year, with that limited time period, why still would an executive order be effective? Well, an executive order um, can be effective, many of them, until, unless and until another president comes along and reverses them. So I would imagine that if we have a, a Democratic president in office, these executive orders wouldn't be reversed. They would they would continue to stand. And for a Republican president, I, I suppose it would it would also depend on the it would depend on the the president. Yeah, well, I'm uh, I'm sure we're we're already seeing that it's going to be hard to overturn. Uh, you need Congress to do it, but but once people have tasted the Affordable Care Act, it seems harder and harder to. Uh, to, to uh, d- dismantle is, is beyond the rhetoric that people put forth. So, I, so you're talking that same type of thing that, that there might be some growing momentum from uh, from the people to keep these things in place. Yes, yes, we could see that. And and with an executive action, it's something that one executive, one president, can do, and then it can be undone by the following executive. I think we saw cases in which George W. Bush, for example, came in and reversed some executive orders that President Clinton had previously put into place. And so there there certainly would be that risk with a, if we were to elect a president who did not agree with some of Obama's executive orders, that they could come and reverse them. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the, uh, one, at least one of my primary criticisms uh, of the president has, has, I have found him to be somewhat lacking in the area of communication, not not to confuse that with oratory, because I think he's one of our great orators ever. But that said, um, when I was listening to the speech, and he touched on some of the things that he's done in his presidency, I found myself saying, well, where was that, Barack Obama, when these policy fights were happening? Did, did you feel something like that, or, or do you see it differently? Well, we I think we did see some of that, particularly um, as the president was... Um, speaking about Social Security and Medicare, and he said that Social Security and Medicare are more important than ever and that we shouldn't weaken them. We should strengthen them. Well, I I am wholeheartedly behind that. I think the research really supports the idea that these are very important programs for lifting Americans out of poverty, for supporting the elderly and and low-income households. But unfortunately, earlier in his presidency, President Obama appeared willing and sometimes even eager to to weaken these programs himself in the pursuit of a deal with the Republicans. 
And so I found it very encouraging to hear him um, emphasize the importance of those programs in his State of the Union address. Talking with Amy, Amy Traub of the Demos Institute, I, I, I don't know many who would suggest that the economy is where it needs to be. But one doesn't need to be John Maynard Keynes to, to also uh, to conclude uh, that we've made great strides economically, and I would even add socially in the past seven years. Why, in your opinion, do you think a lot of this has been lost on the American people? Well, in the first place, I think you're absolutely right. We have created a tremendous number of jobs. Unemployment is down. Um, it's socially, we, we now have... Um, same-sex marriage is the law of the land, and people are able to form a, a real partnership and marriage with the people they love. And so I think um, there's a lot to be said for what we've accomplished during in the, in the Obama years. At the same time, I think the economic challenge in particular um, really revolves around wages. And the fact that Wages have, have not gone up, even as we've seen more job creation. And I think that's really, it's a source of frustration for a lot of people. Important things like health care and especially higher education continue to become more costly and are significant sources of debt for American households. The cost of child care is really out of control and is a, a very large and difficult expense for parents. And um, yet wages really are have been essentially frozen. And that's a, that's a challenge for working people. And it's a reason that the economy doesn't feel like a booming, growing economy to many households and many Americans. You know, when you touched on that, I was, I was thinking back to what um, one of the questions that the uh, president raised in the State of the Union. And, and it seems to be that what you're touching on, I, I believe it's the second, well, the third, maybe the sec second question, I believe it was, where, where where you're really looking at what what type of economy we have vis-a-vis -vis the technology and where Americans ought to be. And it seems to be the president was suggesting that there's a gap. And, I, and when you talk about wages, I hear you saying something very similar. Yes. You know, the president kept returning to the idea that the rules are rigged in favor of the wealthy and big corporations. And I think that idea really resonates with a lot of Americans. And we hear it from candidates to some extent on both sides of the aisle. The president talked about... Um, the the point that working families won't get opportunity or bigger paychecks just by letting big banks or big oil or hedge funds make their own rules at everybody else's expense. I think that people really feel that there is a sense in which the the wealthy and the powerful and big corporations are are profiting and getting ahead while ordinary families can't. And we feel it economically. And then the president also talked about it in terms of in terms of our politics and in terms of this sense that that um, money in politics is really out of control and that that it's a a fundamental problem with our democracy when those who have achieved great wealth and big corporations also have a louder voice in our democracy. Well, I, I believe since 69, uh, we have seen a, uh, an increasing gap between productivity and wages. That's right. Uh, um, we It's been well documented, uh, but yet um, there seems to be this ethos of fear that, that, that dominates um, our our politics, which um, sort of creates this stagnation so that you do have this gap, you know, uh, with stagnating wages. You also have this huge influence of money in politics where a few are financing the campaigns. How do we change that? 
I think uh, that is a tremendous question, and it's one of the questions that the president himself was asking. And I think that it really comes down to the American people. My organization is called Demos, and Demos is a fancy Greek word, but what Demos really means is the people. And that's so much of what the president was talking about in terms of taking back control of our, our politics and our economy so that they really do reflect our aspirations, the aspirations of the American people. And getting, getting big money out of our politics is a, a huge part of that. You know, this thing along those lines, I know that a number of people have said that he was talking uh, about uh, Donald Trump and Ted Cruz um, uh, criticizing their approach. I, I saw what he was saying also in a larger sort of macro scope that, you know, this is what we've become, you know, as a people that where he, by his own admission, was complicit or, or failed to change it. How did you see that? Did you see it specifically with Trump and, and uh, Mr. Cruz? Well, we, we know that Trump and Cruz and other candidates are rising in popularity and have achieved their high popularity because people are supporting them and people have, have um, chosen to, to listen to their messages and those messages are, are resonating with people. And I think that the president expressed some frustration that his own message of, of, of recognizing the challenges that the American people face, and yet not turning against immigrants, not turning against people who may be of a different race or religion, but but really coming together as one demos, one people, to, to address the problems that we, we are facing, which are very serious. Um, and I think the president expressed frustration that he hadn't successfully communicated that to the American people. You know, I, I was actually struck in that same vein by um, – I actually thought that uh, South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley was a little more pointed in her remarks than, than, than the president. I was struck that I uh, maybe, you know, one election cycle earlier, you wouldn't have heard that type of internal pointed criticism. From, I, I think you're right about that, and I think it really speaks to the extent to which things have gone off the rails in this election cycle in terms of – isolationism in terms of xenophobia, and it's it's something that, that uh, mainstream politicians of both parties are recognizing and, and really warning us against. Uh, when you listen to the president's remarks, was, was, there, was there anything that uh, made you hopeful for any uh, policy change? I know you mentioned some executive orders. Was there anything that, that, that left you with some uh, modicum of hope? I, I am hopeful that that going forward, we ultimately will will turn away from this politics of fear and xenophobia, and that we will be the American people that we can be, and that the president called on us to be in his State of the Union address. Um, moving forward, maybe maybe not in terms of of big achievements that are going to happen in the next year, but at least in terms of where we go forward from here as a country, that we will look back and see this as a low point rather than um, a, just a milestone in our continued descent into a politics of fear. Well, I mean, I mean, historically, this is not the first time we've we've had such rancor. When we've done it, you know, we've done it before as Americans. So this was not, this is not the first. It is cyclical, indeed. Um, yes. Are we hamstrung? By certainty, and, and, and by, what I mean by that is, have our our individual political orthodoxies just become so entrenched that it's just made compromise and, by extension, governing nearly impossible? 
there's an extent to which that's true, but again, I am I am hopeful that we will come back from the brink. As you point out, we have we have been in this place before, this kind of polarization, and we have managed to pull together as a country. Uh, we have we have um, definitely gone in some very wrong directions um, and and done things that that were the wrong thing to do, uh, but but we came back and. You know, I am hopeful that we will come back now and we'll move forward as a country. Well, what, if anything, does the president's State of the Union address say to his eventual successor? To his eventual successor, I think he, I think he really laid out a, a positive vision for the country. He spoke about giving everyone a fair shot at economic opportunity and security. He talked about making our politics reflect the best of us and not the worst. And I think that that those both are a signpost forward, whoever the next president may be. Yeah, well, I, and I'm certainly familiar with the work at Demos, and, that, and, and what you just articulated I know is something that uh, your organization is committed to. But as you also know, not every think tank is committed to that vision. And, uh, and so um, how do we move beyond the talking points uh, of a vision that's somewhat antithetical to what you just articulated? You know, I think that, that um, for most people, there, the division, there is, there is political division, but when you come down fundamentally to what people are looking for, what, what they want out of their lives, what – they hope that they will be able to do. You know, you get be, people want to to raise their families, to have a good job that enables them to support themselves and sustain their families. And we may differ in the extent to which we uh, think that the government needs to be involved in regulating the economy to help more families achieve that vision. But fundamentally, we we don't want such different things out of life. And I think that the American people can come together focusing on the fundamental things that we're looking for. You know, what you just said uh, has nothing to do with how you voted in the last election, if, if whether you're liberal or conservative or so, somewhat in the middle. But yet it's it's that I'm liberal or, or I'm conservative that, that, that keeps getting in the way. Yeah. Well, I think coming beyond this this politics of fear to really be talking to each other is is one way that can help to bring us together. Amy Traub, I, I want to thank you for being on the public morality, and, and we will certainly have you back because I'm sure we'll have something to talk about during the 2016 presidential election. Thank you so much. Well, great. Thank you, Byron. I'd love to come back. That was Amy Traub, Senior Policy Analyst from the Demos Institute in New York City. Coming up, my closing remarks. Next week on The Public Morality. We'll speak with author Todd Brewster about his best-selling book, Lincoln's Gamble, and the making of the Emancipation Proclamation. And after that, Winston-Salem Mayor Alan Joins will stop by to talk about the city's efforts to address poverty. That's next week on The Public Morality. And now for my closing remarks. With his last Day of the Union address... It is fair to say that President Barack Obama is heading into the sunset of a transformational two terms. Just eight years ago, the thought that he could become President of the United States was merely a pipe dream for many Americans, regardless of color. 
America's history with race is well documented. So the likelihood of a black man becoming commander-in-chief in my lifetime was far-fetched, to say the least. I recall being at the Democratic Convention in Boston back in 2004 when presidential nominee John Kerry tapped this skinny guy with a name many did not know what to do with to give the keynote address for the convention. After Barack Obama electrified the crowd, people with tears in their eyes were saying he could be the first black president. I, on the other hand, was not convinced. But I had underestimated the country. And in spite of the political rancor that marred his presidency, the symbolic presence of Barack Obama says something about the greatness of America. What other industrial nation would elect someone who ostensibly represents 12% of the population to be its leader? Would Great Britain elect someone of Jamaican heritage to be prime minister? Would Germany elect someone with Turkish ancestry to be chancellor? Would France elect someone whose parents hailed from Algeria? Regardless how you answer my series of hypothetical questions, it happened in America. Not once, but twice, giving us a glimpse of that more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments, questions, and suggestions for upcoming shows. To contact us, you can email at Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, Byron at PublicMorality.org. That's Byron at PublicMorality.org. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced by WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.